Welcome to Build, this is Maggie. Today I have SK on the show. He's the SVP of product at Product Board. Before that, he was VP of product at CultureAmp. He was the co-founder and CEO of Zugato, which was acquired by CultureAmp. He spent many years at VMware. Basically, he's been doing this for 20 years and was the perfect person to dig in with on every PM's favorite topic, prioritization. We get into why it's so hard, tips and tricks for how to prioritize effectively, and how it changes alongside the PM role as that changes as you grow. Plus, I got a lot of bonus advice from SK. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. SK, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So today we're going to get into every PM's favorite or also maybe least favorite topic, prioritization. Uh, But before we dive into how to think about that and how to do it effectively at different companies, I wanted to start with why do you think that prioritization is such a consistently hot topic for product managers? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Look, I've been a product manager for just over 20 years now, and prioritization is always the hardest thing to do. Not only because you get so many requests and it's hard to know how to prioritize just from the amount of data that you have, but I think the harder problem is to know if you've actually done it well. Like it takes so long to know if you've made the right call. And so the feedback loops, my background mostly has been in B2B, right? So in B2C, mm-hmm. it's different. But in B2B, it's really hard to know if you've made the right call or not. The feedback loops take sometimes take a long time. So it's hard to know if you've made the right call, which just adds more to the pressure. You know, like you're forced to make a call. You don't know if you're making the right call. You're not going to find out if you made the right call or not. And before you actually even realize what you did, you're having to make the next call again. So it's hard to learn as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it feels like it's a never-ending rat race that you can't ever get out of, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's just a very stressful thing for, for PMs to deal with, no matter how junior or senior they are. Yeah. And I think it also, at some point, I always have thought that a lot of the the stuff around prioritization is there to help give you, in some cases, excuses or things that you can point to to say like, well, I did the process and so it's not my fault or, you know, I did the, the math or like I did the analysis. So like it's, you know, whatever happens, happens and I don't have to take responsibility because like you're saying, you're kind of eventually just making a bet. Yeah. But the interesting thing though is, like at least for the PMs that that I lead now, I always tell them that, look, ultimately it's your butt on the line. You will be responsible. You can't blame the process. You can't blame engineering. You can't blame design. Ultimately, the buck stops with you. And like I, I you know, hold my PMs, you know, responsible for, like sometimes, you know, there's so much pressure to ship something. Like you made a customer commitment, right? Like you want to get something out and then you ship it and realize that, man, that was like not the right call. Like, you know, something was not tidied up well or it doesn't work as expected. And I always like look at the payments and look, man, like look, person, you have the ultimate call to pull the chain and say, hey, this is not ready. It's your butt on the line. In a sense, PMs are kind of the bookends of anything, right? Like the first at the front end, it's you're the one who's making the call in terms of what to build and prioritize and all that. And at the very end, you're the last, a check yeah. before something goes out into the wild, you know, so have the courage and take the responsibility for saying, you know what, something is not quite ready and escalate and people will help you out, but don't just fall to the pressure of like feeling like you have to ship and then having to like deal with, you know, worse consequences after. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. A lot of it is having that courage. So when 
again, I think it's interesting because you're, you work right now and for a company that built something for product management. And we talked about this little that the I, my outside assumption is the pressure is high to do it the right way. So can you give me a, your basic view today, just today, because I'm sure it's changed over time, of like how do you approach prioritization and what is the structure that you give the team? Yeah. So first of all, to your first point, I feel like I feel the pressure and more importantly, <laughs> everybody on my team you know, feels the pressure. Like I think in general, product managers don't tend to suffer fools easily. Uh, and so you can't really bullshit them and you can't give them a shitty tool and expect them yep. to use it and, and like it and put up with it. So I feel like there's an- And they are they know all your tricks yeah. when, you, when, you're, when you're doing user research and yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I feel like the bar is higher for us and, and consequently we feel the pressure of having to build something you know, that is really delightful, that like really solves the problems. And, and and I think for us, we can't fake the empathy, right? We have to like really like have that shine through. So I think just just that point is, is a really important one for us. But I think for, for us, the way we think about prioritization is, you know, in a, in a sense that the fear that I have is, you know, we have thousands of customers, right? And we get a lot of requests from our existing customers in terms of features that they need, you know, for from us. And the, the danger is if you like overemphasize listening to your customers, right, and only do what your customers are asking for. And that actually will take you multiple years just to like meet all the needs of your existing customer base. That's dangerous for the business, right? Because you're kind of mortgaging the future, right? You're not innovating. You're not building things that people are not asking you for. And soon enough, somebody else will do something and you're completely like caught because you haven't like really had the time to think about it. And so that's like my greatest fear is like, you know, being, you know, customer focus is massively important, but being only focused on existing customers is dangerous for your business, right? And so that's the thing that I, I worry about. So from a prioritization standpoint, the guidance that I give to the team is like, think about what you're building to like help you differentiate the product in the market. There's a lot of things that are happening in the market. How are we different? How are we better? Right. We've got to focus on that and make some investments there. And then obviously our existing customers are important because we don't want them to churn, right? So that's an important thing. And then, you know, we're, we've been around for a few years and, and any company that's been building product for a while knows that there's all kinds of debt that you pick up along the way. You know, there's technical debt, there's design debt, there's process debt. And I think the other thing too that's really important that we don't talk about enough is really culture debt, right? Like people and how we work, you know, especially in the COVID time when everything is distributed, there's just a lot of debt that we pick up, you know, all those things may not hurt you in the short term, but like eventually they'll come back to bite you, you know? So like you have to like invest in, in those things. So like high level, my guidance, like we follow what we call the 30-30-30 rule. So 30% of our investment is always focused on building differentiators that potentially our customers are not even asking for. 30% towards what our existing customers want, 30% towards, you know, our debt and taking care of our house in a sense. And then just having a bit of slack for anything that comes up at you, which will always happen. Right. That's the way we kind of approach it here. Yeah. When it's interesting, this theme of starting with an investment framework in order to prevent what you're talking about of over overdoing it on on one of those categories is something that I've started hearing in the last year as well, and or at least is new to me in the last year. And the thing, an interesting lesson that I learned recently is how to evaluate when you've done enough in a category, mm -hmm. especially in the, the current customer category. And I think 
setting, like knowing how to set the right limits or what good looks like for retention or what good looks like for how usable is it or how happy are your current customers. I think like it's one thing to know what your churn rate is, but it's another thing to know, like, is this product good enough for me to switch to doing investing in that other category. So yep. how do you think about helping a PM make that that switch because especially when you're so in the weeds with your product and you want it to be good enough and you know it could be better? Yeah. And having that perspective. Yeah, yeah. That's a tough one, man. I mean, I think especially for somebody like in in our organization where we're focused on like, you know, helping PMs, we we know all the warts in the system, right? Like we're like, "Oh, man, the PMs are going to know that. They're going to see right through this." <laughs> and so we need to like there's a, a lot of pressure to like, you know, keep tweaking it. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the thing that PMs have to realize is it's never done, right? Like nothing right. is ever done, right? It, I think that's the fallacy. Uh, and so you shouldn't be necessarily like shooting to get it done. It's always like, is this the most important thing for us to be working on, right? Given all the things that you do is adding, you know, like colors or what, I don't know, I'm just making up something you know, yeah, yeah. that, you know, somebody would have asked for that, you know, could be useful is that the, the best thing for us to be investing in for the business, right? And I think the key thing that I always like you know, talk to the PMs about is like, ultimately, PMs don't get credit for shipping features, right? They get credit for building businesses. So that's the lens through which they should always be thinking about like, hey, if I have a dollar to spend on this versus that, what is going to give me the highest ROI from a company business perspective? You know? And that's the lens through which I ask people to look at. And that tends to help. And even sometimes that is hard. But like that, when you look at it through that lens, you kind of realize that, hey, maybe I don't need to like keep investing in, in kind of polishing this and gold plating this one feature. Instead, if I could use the resources to build something else that might actually like help the business grow or something else, some other metric that could be important for the business. So that, that's the, the, the way I approach, approach it. One is just realizing that it's never done. Two is looking at it through the business lens and figuring out what is most important for the business. Yeah. And I, I think part of that though, is also learning how to have a little bit of distance between yourself and the thing. Cause it's, it's one thing to say, especially as, you know, manager, manager, managers, whatever. Yeah. You need to have some, think about it as an investor, but if you've already been working on something for so long and you're so deep in the weeds, and I think maybe it's part of that cultural debt, like learning how to pull yourself out and look at it objectively, I think can be, can be challenging and a jump that you have to, I would look to see in a PM as they were growing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the interesting thing is, oftentimes it's not even just the PM, right? Like your engineering team or your design team could be like holding you back and they'll be like, oh, dude, like give me just one more day I can like, or one more week or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I can do this little one thing, you know? It takes a lot of courage and discipline to always be able to like kind of take a step back and, and reflect and look at it through the lens of the business and be able to like communicate that with your team, right? It's like, you mm-hmm. can make the call, but if your engineering and design teams are not with you, that's dangerous as well, you know? So in yeah. a sense, it's like, it's it's your butt on the line. So you have to make the call. And two, you have to communicate the rationale, right? And explain and articulate why you made that decision, why you think this is the right decision with your team and kind of take them on their journey. And that's yep. really important as well. Not, not just to like say when you're done, but also like just to build features, anything, right? Like we talk about, you know, EPD as a triad, and, and it's really important for the PM to kind of take them on the journey with you. You know, if they don't commit, if they don't put skin in the game, you're fighting an uphill battle. Yeah. I was gonna, I'm was i glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, how do you think about 
okay, let's say we've done 30, 30, 30, and we have kind of a good sense of where we're investing. I would imagine that you, I mean, at least the way I view it is I don't want to have consensus. So I don't think that we want to prioritize based on consensus, but you also do want to have the whole team sort of bought in or at least understanding and committing to the, whatever it is. How do you, like, do you have any frameworks or processes that, that you've used to help go from those investments to the specific things and sort of that in, help involve those other parties without making it just a group effort? Yeah. So it, it can't be like prioritization can't be a group effort, right? Now, obviously, engineering and, and design have a big say in it, but ultimately, mm-hmm. like PMs have to make the call in terms of what's important for the business and be able to drive that. And I think, so what, one of the things that we do, we do quarterly you know, product reviews yep. where we have, you know, the engineering, you know, PM and design leadership all in it together and the exec sit in on it as well. And we talk through, hey, what have we shipped in the last quarter? Right. What what are the metrics? What what is adoption look like? What has worked? What's not work? And kind of do a retro on what has happened, and then talk about what we're going to ship, and make sure that everybody is aligned. And the key thing that we look to do with the quarterly product reviews too is is kind of highlighting the the dependencies across teams. I think that's the other danger thing that that often happens is, you know, depending on how you're structured, we use tribes and you know teams and tribes kind of a model. Tribe will kind of just focus on in the, they know their lane and they stick to their lane, and they might be dependencies or they're not thinking about connecting the dots, you know, across these things. And the downside of that is you end up shipping your org structure. Like a customer will see the seams in your product, yeah, because they you've not communicated. So a lot of the things that I look to do in the quarterly product reviews is how do you bubble those things up and make sure that we're thinking about it holistically, thinking about it from a customer standpoint versus our internal team structure standpoint. For the this the stuff that you're talking about in that quarterly product review, is it all the way all are the teams already talking about the specific features? Like they've already done discovery and you're pulling the stuff in from discovery to talk about the specifics or are you talking about the the broader sort of outcomes or problems? Yeah. For some of them we will get into the weeds and for some mm-hmm. things we could say, hey, th- these are the key metrics that we want to move. Right. And we trust the teams to go figure it out and we don't get into it. But for other things, we do look at the, you know, what they've discovered, what they're going to actually build okay, and review that. And, you know, for like big ticket items, we tend to get into the, hey, what exactly are you building? Let's review that and make sure that we get it, you know. Mm-hmm. And as a way to get like the non-EPD teams to understand it as well, as, you know, for us, customer success comes to those meetings. You know, the sales team comes, not the entire sales team, but the leadership is there. So they get a bit of a sense of like what exactly, you know, we're building. And and one of the things that we underestimate is the the need for us to sell some of these features to other groups within the company. You know, if your sales team is not excited about what you're building, they ain't going to be able to sell it well, you know. So mm-hmm. how do you the sales and marketing teams to get excited about some of the things that are coming down the pipe? And so we use that as an opportunity for some big ticket items to actually kind of drill down. And kind of showcase some like in detail, but for other things, you know, that are that we've been working on, we don't need to get into the details. We trust the teams to like know, and they'll talk about the metrics that they want to move. Mm-hmm. Trust them to go execute on that. And I got I have to ask because we talked about this a little bit before when we were chatting, and I'm getting curious this year about this topic. But is it just a big spreadsheet? Or like, what is it? What is the actual thing that your team is filling out? Is it a doc? Is it a spreadsheet? Like, how do they actually put this stuff together? Yeah. Or is it in your in the product that you're building? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the products. Yeah, but like, 
I hope no product board people are listening to this, but <laughs> I, I kind of maintain a slight little spreadsheet on, on the side. Yes. Everyone has the side list. <laughs> like one of the things that I do like is like when people are presenting on like what they're building and stuff, right? I'm mm-hmm. listening and I'm taking notes and I like put them like, Hey, which of these are like differentiators, right? That we could actually like market. What are, which of these can we actually write a press release about, you know? Which of these are neutralizers? Which of these are retainers? And I try to like bucket them just so that I have a feel for like, hey, at the end of the quarter, you know, if I have to write a press release, I, I have some notion of what is worthy, you know, what is press release worthy? And the thing that I talk to the team about is like, you know, we have four tribes, you know, in, in our company. And so the thing that I talk to the team about is like, man, I, I need to be able to write a press release at the end of each quarter. And so if each tribe contributes one big ticket item that's press release worthy. We're asking them to do one big ticket item a year. And if we can sequence them well, then four quarters, we're getting four press releases out. Right? And that allows us to showcase like the innovation, the stuff that we're building, you know? And if you think about it, like it's just one once a year, it makes it a little bit easier for people to grok that and they don't feel the pressure that you have to like ship something big every quarter, yeah. you know? But so that that's what I kind of keep on my own side. And, and I color code them. So it just gives me a quick visual view of like, man, is are we just doing a whole bunch of neutralizers and retainers or do we have enough differentiators, you know, just kind of eyeballing it. And eventually we'll probably end up having to build something like that in the product and yeah. the right place for us to be doing it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of the lessons that I that I don't know how obvious it is when someone's moving from PM to manager of PMs to manager of managers is the portfolio view is kind of what you're getting at. And what are the, in my side list, I I remember when I first started doing it, I had to write down like, these are the constraints that I should be thinking about. And it has to be like, until someone tells you, you might not even realize that it's like, okay, I need to think about differentiators and things that are maintaining your current product and tech debt. And then I need to think about how big a story is it in the market. And then I need to think about, you know, who's going to be excited and how recent was the last one. And, you know, did my last launch go well? And even just like having that list of, of like my checklist of things I need to think about every time I look at this, at the thing is, has been so helpful and makes it so much easier to do this process, I think. Absolutely. And the thing that I tell the team too, is like, when I'm sitting in these reviews, like I'm taking my notes, right? And I'm like looking back at my notes to see what, you know, they said last quarter. And if, if you present a roadmap for the next quarter, coming up quarter, and you don't have any big ticket items, that in itself is not a, you know, differentiators. That in itself is not a bad thing, right? But the thing that I tell my team is like, if I have to like go two quarters in a back to back, where you're not telling me if anything interesting that you're doing that could be potentially game changing, then I freak the freak out because like, that's dangerous, right? You've got to like, you should uh-huh. always be thinking about like what's next, right? Like I, I always say, look, we hire great PMs and you guys have like awesome brains. Like use your brain, man. Like don't <laughs> listen to customers. You can like actually like think beyond what customers are asking you for. Mm-hmm. I was just having a conversation like this the other day and we realized in this conversation that we didn't have something that was like big enough. We, you know, we, we were looking at it and we just weren't feeling like there's got to be something else and like we've got to think bigger how do you okay let's let's assume a team has realized that but they just don't that's all they've got like what questions or prompts or how do you help them think of what those big things could be if they're like stuck in the mindset of of iteration or retention yeah so we're actually going through that with one of our teams right now so perfect like the thing that we're actually doing 
and we'll see if this is the right thing or not. But mm-hmm. we, I mean, obviously there's no point in drilling down in the quarterly product reviews, right? You just kind of take a note to yourself and say, hey, I, you know, I got to go check in with this team after. Yeah. yeah. And so what we're doing now is we're basically, our, we're just doing a workshop. We're all coming together and we're basically going to, we basically said, look, these are all the reasons why we think that what we're doing is not good enough in the market. Let's just do a workshop. Let's just kind of brainstorm together, right? Like I'm not just going to review your work. I'm going to roll up my sleeves. Let's work on it together to come up with, you know, ideas. You know, we're bringing some engineering folks, design folks are going to be in there as well. And so in a sense, it's kind of like a team effort. We're working together to kind of like help them, you know, think beyond the box that they're kind of placing themselves in. And oftentimes that's what happens is they, they kind of put constraints around themselves, which which forces them to like keep incrementing. And one of the value adds that managers of managers and execs can bring to the table is you can change that box, right? Like some of the constraints that the team thinks that they have may actually, like from their perspective, they probably can't change it. But from your perspective or my perspective, we can change those constraints, right? And so like it's it's kind of reshaping it a little bit and kind of you know placing them in a slightly different box and looking at it from a different perspective and trying to figure out like what's holding them back. And that's just, you know, talking it out and spending time with them. And I try to just do that hands-on as much as I can, you know, more as a collaborative thing versus like beating them up, you know, that doesn't serve anybody well. Yeah. It's not going to help anyone be creative. Yeah. What other questions or tools do you use to assess whether a team is is doing this prioritization correctly? So, you, you know, you're getting a list, or you're looking at the suggestions from the team. How, like, how do you evaluate that? And how do you stress test? You know, obviously there's the the framework of investment and then there's, you know, are, the, are you thinking big enough with differentiation? Like, what other questions are you asking the team? Yeah. So the other thing that 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 I look at is, at a certain level, like I look at the business numbers, like a revenue and a growth patterns, right? And a churn stuff. So the, the key stat that I look at is just our churn rate, right? And is that like, what what does churn rate look like for the, the different segments, for the different products that we have? And the key thing that I like is if churn is high, like I want to make sure that the team is acknowledging that and realizing that they need to spend more of their cycles and kind of fixing the leaky bucket versus doing all these cool, innovative things. You know, it's like, are they thinking about the problem correctly? You know, like there are times like, you know, when churn is really low, right? It's a luxurious time. Like it doesn't happen very often. When you have that, don't keep doing more stuff for the existing customers are already happy. You're not going to get that much more out of it. You know, mm-hmm. that's when you need to like double down on growth and do a couple of like big ticket items, get those going. But whereas when churn is high, if you build some great cool stuff, you got a leaky bucket. It doesn't really like serve you well. So I always like try to like check sense check and say, Hey, is the balance correct? Are they focusing on the right things based on the state of the business at this point in time? And do they understand that? Do they understand the business context in which this release is going to go out? You know, that's the key thing that I'm looking to make sure that they've got the investment, you know, distribution right. Yeah. And it's interesting. I've also seen if you get that call wrong and you don't have a good perspective on retention and you ship something new, then not only your customers not really care, they can get angry because they're like, I don't like you're waste you're spending all your time building this new thing, but you haven't even done this other thing. Like, what are you what are you guys doing over there? Yeah. Um, which can be such a, a letdown to a team who's worked so hard on, you know, whatever the shiny new idea it was that they had. 
Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting though, right? You cannot be like discouraged when customers say that, right? Because they will always say that, right? There's always, (laughs) they always have things that they want you to do. And this goes back to my point is like, if you just did everything that they wanted, like you're going to have your roadmap full for like years. Yeah. And they're going to get pissy with you. So like a certain amount of pissiness is fine as long as they're happy. But if they're not happy and they're close to churning and then you like do something else, then it just kind of bites you. Okay. So I want to go back to the the cadence and the process for how you're doing this. So we have the 30-30, we do the quarterly product review. Is there like a circle back and recheck it after doing some initial investigation? Like what are the next steps before, you know, the quarter kicks off? Yeah. So, I mean, the quarter will kick off, but what we tend to do is uh, mid, uh, like mid-quarter check-ins. Mm-hmm where we're actually just kind of seeing, hey, how are things progressing? Like if you're in discovery for something, like what's, what, you know, give us an update or if you're shipping something, is everything tracking or not, right? Are all the dependencies working out, right? All the risks are being managed and mitigated. But it's also a time for us to like, given that we're in B2B, right? Given that, you know, when we ship stuff, it takes a lot of time for customers to actually adopt the stuff that we've shipped, you know? So it's like hard for us to know, success and metrics and engagement right away. So in a sense, the mid-quarter is an opportunity for us to kind of say, hey, what did we ship, you know, last quarter or even maybe the quarter before then for some things, right? What are the signals that we're getting? Let's reflect on that. Let's talk about what's happening. What did we learn? You know, what do we need to do for that? So it gives us, it's a forcing function for us to look back at some of the stuff that we have shipped to make sure that, you know, things are tracking as we said they would. So that it, it's just a more checks and balances for us. That brings up something that I wonder about, which is, so you're, we're doing this exercise, we're figuring out what we're going to do in a given quarter, whatever time frame is you're planning on. But like you're saying, there are the things that you did the prior quarter that you have done to your, whatever satisfaction you decided to do last quarter. And now the team has to have something, you have to fill their time. So they move on, but you don't know, like to what you're saying, you don't know whether there's more work to be done or what's going to happen. How do you, is that the the like leftover percentage? Like, how do you account for the, I had a situation where I was like, I don't know what the thing is, but I, I feel like there's a thing that we're going to want to do. And so I don't want to overschedule the team, but I just didn't have a good way to articulate that. Yeah. Balance. It depends, right? I mean, there might be things that you, even though they haven't adopted some things, you kind of know it's part of your vision. You're like, you're just going to do it anyway, right? It's like, you know, for us, you know, we want to extend beyond something, right? We're just going to build that up anyway, right? Like, and we'll figure out how to like drive adoption. So we kind of know that we have a couple quarters worth of work to get that done. So we're going to keep going. But just kind of checking in, it gives us an opportunity to like figure out like, hey, are things tracking or not? If something is not tracking, then, you know, maybe we need to extend the project to like figure it out. And there might be other instances where we have shipped something we thought was good enough, right? We've kind of moved on, right? We're doing something that we think is more important, but that's actually not landing well. Something is blowing up, whatever. And so given that it's a quarterly review and people are like, you know, people who can make the decisions in terms of changing the priorities are in the room. And it's an opportunity for us to say, hey, do we need to act on it or not? You know, and what's the implication of us changing to react to that? And making sure the right people in the room before you make that call, and and sometimes you might say, you know what, that's fine. We'll come back to it next quarter, uh, kind of a thing. So it, it depends, you know, on what it is. So I don't have a, a solid, great answer for you on that one. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just always trying to get it 
I mean, I, we even started this by saying there's no right answer, but I was like trying to get it right. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, what is the right way to answer this question and to account for the work that I don't really know about and should I account for it and how does it fit into this thing? And I was just curious if you if you had solved this sneaky problem. No, I mean, like you, you have that 10% slack, right? That gives you a bit of, you know, room to act on some of these things. But at the same time, it's hard for people to like change context as well. Yeah. So the thing that I try to avoid is like once you've committed to something, unless it's like freaking like earth shattering, I try not to change the priorities mid quarter unless it's it's something really significant. You know, otherwise I yeah. let, let it ride out. We'll come back. Yeah, that's been an interesting experience going from super early stage startup to, you know, hyper growth scaling startup is really feeling that pain and of course wanting to be more consistent as we get bigger and as communication costs increase and as our customer base increases. But in that transition, the timing of your insights doesn't match the quarterly cycle. And it would be nice if all the things we were learning was were showing up right when we needed them to like get them on the plan, but that's not how it works. And so that's something I think about a lot is maybe this great idea does come mid quarter and maybe we want to get it in next quarter. So we got to shortcut the research a little bit because we know we want to do it and how to make the team sort of be okay with that. And I, uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you is about how do you see different levels of seniority handle prioritization? Cause it's one of those things where I see the people who are more senior are the ones who kind of can roll with that and figure out how to handle it. Whereas more junior, it's harder to do to hang with those changes. Yeah, it always is, right? Like I think, you know, people who haven't been through startups are hard, dude. Like, I mean, you know, it's just also true. Yeah. yeah, It's so hard. So like by definition, if you're working in a in a startup, like you should expect certain amount of uncertain uncertainty has a negative connotation, but just you know, like stuff happens all the time. You know, you're constantly reacting to stuff. So in a sense, if you want everything to be just Picture perfect, you know, go work in a big bank or, you know, in a utilities company or something where nothing changes, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it, it takes a little bit of effort. And I think that's where leadership has, has to like own it, right? The, the communication and kind of taking people on the journey and communicating the changes and the rationale for the changes. I think the individual PMs will probably need a bit of air cover, you know, with their engineering teams. And this is where, the partnership, even at the at the leadership level between the PM leads and the engineering leads and the design leads is so critical, you know? Mm-hmm. And so at a certain level, I feel like any changes, it's almost the leadership's responsibility to take ownership of that. You know, whether they're driving it or not, you better step up to the plate and lead the team, you know, because change is hard, right? And you can't just outsource the communication and the handling of that to some poor IC who's stuck with the decision that you've made. And so for me, it's, it's that, that's where leadership has to step up to the plate and, and do their job. Yeah, I think also finding, talking about those counterparts, finding the counterparts where it's a safe space where you can go and say, okay, this we have this new input, we have this new idea. Imagine we decided to do this. Like, Let's think about what that would be like. And for finding the people who can have that conversation and not spiral immediately, yeah. um, I think is always important. I always want to know who those people are to be like, okay hypothetical that's not a hypothetical yeah like what's gonna go wrong about this yeah yeah and i think the other framework that i've used in the past is and maybe not to the specific thing that you're asking me is Mm -hmm. if you want to do something it's like what needs to be true for this to happen 
Yeah, right? is a I love that question. one. It's like, you know, you can say, oftentimes you go to like people and say, hey, I want this to happen. They'll be like, no. I'm like, well, don't just say no. <laughs> Tell me what you're going to drop in order to do this. You know what I mean? Let's have that kind of a conversation. So I think that's also an interesting one where I've tried that a couple of times and that seems to work really well and gives people a bit of a license to have more of a conversation and kind of like figure it out with you versus like immediately getting into a defensive you know, posture and kind of fighting you on it. Yeah, I love that question. It's a, I learned it from a friend of mine who's a management consultant and I was asking her a question and I was asking it the wrong way. And she said, well, why don't you ask what has to has to be true about the world for this scenario you're talking about to be the right one? Yep. I was like, exactly. oh, great. Yep. Love that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, we could obviously talk about this for forever, but I'm curious, what are your stepping back and kind of going continuing on this leadership theme, what are your top pieces of advice for your teammates and as you've, you've gone through your career on moving from, you know, PM to management and ma- management to senior leadership? Like, how do you help people think about those those jumps and what's your advice for them? Yeah. Look, I think that the key one, especially with management, right? Like, it happened to me. Like, I was a developer before I became a PM, right? It happened to me when I was a developer. It happened to me uh, uh, when I was a PM is... You get promoted into a management role because you're doing your job well, oftentimes, right? I was a good developer and they promoted me to manage other developers. Same thing happened when I became a PM. And the thing that I didn't realize when I was young is that managing people is a completely different job. It doesn't matter that I was a you know good developer or a good PM before. That's not the job anymore. And so I struggled, like, you know, I struggled to become a good manager. It took me a while to kind of figure it out. And so I think the key question that, you know, I want to like have people reflect on is don't think that becoming a manager of PMs is the path for everybody. Don't feel like you have to do that in order to have a bigger impact on the company or to get, you know, up in the corporate ladder, what have you, you know, that cannot be the reason why you want to do it. You can be a damn great PM and have tremendous impact by being an individual contributor. In fact, a lot of companies are now starting to like think about two tracks for PMs, just like they do for engineering, right? There's an IT track where you're working on more and more complicated problems, you know, uh, or you're managing, you know, PMs and, you know, portfolios and things like that. Very different skill set. And so I think that the most important question to ask is, hey, which of those paths do I feel most comfortable in? Forget what everybody else wants me to do, right? Am I passionate about building product? If I'm passionate about building product above anything else, why would I want to go manage people? It just, like, you're not going to be, maybe you will be greater. And then, you know, then it's awesome. But if you want to keep building products, there's nothing wrong with that, man. There's no shame in that. Like, take pride in that and say, look, man, I'm just going to keep building product. Yeah, and I think those people are, I would also say, management dreams, Because they're, you know, those so super senior principal level product people who just, it's like, you don't even have to give them any constraints. It's like, there's some kind of opportunity over there. Can you just deal with it and figure out what it is? And they come back and there's like, here's a whole business. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I think that's probably the biggest, biggest thing for me, right? Mm -hmm. At a very early stage, figure out which of those paths is the one that you want to go on and realize that if you go down the management path, it's a completely different ball of wax. And, and if you thought being a PM is hard, <laughs> I would contend that managing people is probably 10 times harder, right? Yeah. And that tracks for me. Yeah. And so, you know, like, you know, I 
freaking hired like, you know, 100 MBAs, you know, in, in my career, every one of them is like, oh, I want to become a director. I'm like, I want to manage people. <laughs> like, can you just please enjoy the time when you don't have to manage people? You will, ne- you may not get this opportunity again. So try to like stay there for as long as you can. This is the most fun, you know? Yeah. I have that conversation with so many people. I mean, I have an MBA and from people who are coming out of business school saying, you know, oh, I want to be director. I want to be VP of product. And I'm like, you've literally never shipped a piece of software. Like whoever hires you into that role is doing a bad job. Like that just doesn't make any sense. And yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And I think once you become a manager, right? Like it's, it's, you know, it's a completely different skill set. And I think the biggest thing that you need to do if you're a group PM or director of PM is just the clarity, right? Mm-hmm. Of the business and just like really helping your PMs think through problems and being there, you know, uh, with, with prioritization when shit blows up, which will happen, right? Like you have to be able to like guide them through. And it's a tough job, right? Middle management in general is hard, you know? You're going to get it from both ends. So mm-hmm. I don't really envy those people, but it's, it's a hard job. So make sure you want it is, is I think the, the key thing. Yeah. When another thing that I think about a lot, especially as I watch uh, PMs grow in their careers, and I think this probably applies to, to both tracks, is how your peer group has to change and how your points of reference have to change as you grow. Yep. And I think there's so much content out there about, you know, working with your engineers and figuring out how to be a team and, you know, doing all that stuff. You spend all this time trying to build those connections and then you get more senior and all of a sudden you're not the person, you're not the like defender of the team. You know, you have to be sort of outside the team and influencing them to do the thing that the business needs to do. And sometimes that means you can't be best friends with your engineers. And I think like seeing people sort of figure out those relationships is is a tricky part that I didn't, I didn't really expect when I first started the journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. That's um and, and same thing with your own team too, right? Like, I mean, oftentimes it's hard for people, you know, you and I might be peers and then you might get promoted tomorrow and you become a manager. It's a really awkward, you know, time for you to like figure out like, hey, we were best buds. You can't be best buds with me anymore. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And and a lot of people struggle with that as well. I think about that a lot because I my current role, I went from IC to manager to manager of managers and a, and a lot of the team is the same. Mm-hmm. And I... I think trying to figure out how to be authentic to who you are and not pretend like that has that like that doesn't change me. It doesn't change my relationship. I mean, it does change my relationship with people around me, but it doesn't mean I'm better than anybody. And I think knowing that your your role has changed, but that doesn't give you any special authority over people and, and being really careful about that is what's I hope. I mean, maybe they're listening to this, hopefully working with the team. Yeah. And, and you have to be deliberate, right? You have to be like self-aware to realize that. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes it's so easy to pick up bad habits when you become a manager and think that, you know, you can do things that maybe you can, but there's a cost to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would also imagine when you when you leave and you start at a new company, you get to reinvent yourself and decide, you know, I'm going to be, this is the person I'm going to be in this role and I'm not going to repeat these mistakes. And if you're getting promoted from within a company, those those choices follow you. And so I think it's, it's also hard to reinvent yourself that way. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing too is how other people perceive you may not change as well, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who is a VP of engineering would have met you first when you were just like an ICPM. And they would have formed some opinion of you, right? Yeah. And they might not have worked closely with you. And then you become like a GPM or a director. And they still probably think you are the way you are when, you know. They're There's that whippersnapper MBA. Yeah. Still annoying. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> but, but like, it's interesting, like, how some people's perceptions may not change. And so that becomes, 
you know, something that you'll need to manage as well, or just be aware of. Yeah. What's your like top piece of advice for someone who's stepping into the role that like type of role that you have right now? What was the first piece of advice you give them or your best piece of advice on how to be successful? I think at my level, it's probably a lot of it is just your relationships with the rest of the org are critical to your success. And a lot of what I do, even though I have the title, is really influencing people, right? And so just knowing your stuff and, and just you're dependent on other people, right? You, you're not building anything anymore. It's really about your ability to influence and excite people to like build the stuff that, you know, collectively we all believe is the right thing for the company. So I think relationships are massively important more than anything else. You could be the, the brightest person, but if you can't work with other people, if you can't influence other people, you're toast. Yep. Yeah, I love that. All right. Okay. Actual last question. Any books or podcasts or newsletters that you're reading or recommending right now that you find to be like particularly helpful? I read a lot of stuff, but not typically about product stuff. It, you know, I find it exhausting to read about other people's experiences building products. You know, there's there's just too much sugarcoating and not enough of the struggle in in those books and the blogs. And and I always worry when PMs reads a blog and say, oh, well, you know, that company is doing it like this. We should do it. Like I'm like, dude, you don't really know all the stuff that's happening. So I'm a bit annoyed. And the quotes I have for I wish that when I stopped recording the episode and the the things that people admit to, yeah, a lot of waterfall happening out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I tend to be a, a bit of a cynic on other people sharing their, you know, beautiful success stories, you know. But I think the one book that has helped me a lot just in my own career as a PM is The Art of, you know, Making Friends or Winning Friends. Oh, yeah. It's like the, I don't know, I'm going to get it wrong too, but it's like The Art of Winning People, Making Friends and something. Yeah, that, that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that one. I'll put it in the show notes. I like, that's the only book that I read multiple times. Like, you know, when I travel, especially international, I, like I can't sleep on planes. So I always like take that book with me once a year just to mm-hmm. like, read, you know, and kind of refresh. That I felt like was a, a powerful book for me in terms of like how to work with people, how to like develop relationships, you know. And so I think if, if you want to be a PM or if you're already a PM, like that's the best book to read over and over again. I love that. I haven't read it. So maybe maybe now is finally the time. You should do it. That I should, I'm yeah. Telling you, that's going to be the best uh, use of your time. I'm sure you have other things to do, but like it's helpful. And you get something different out of it every time you read it based on like what your situation is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think I love books like that. Awesome. Well, SK, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Um, learned a ton about prioritization. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. 